Hello, this is Dr. Cindy Banier. I am a mom and small business owner, and I care about our water, our health, and our community. And this is my very first podcast. It's shortly after midnight, just after what ordinarily would have been a day of fun and revelry between it being St. Patrick's Day and our congressional, no, I'm sorry, not congressional, but our presidential preferential primary day here in Florida, it would have been a very exciting day ordinarily, except we have this thing going on, the coronavirus outbreak. And in pretty short order, life here in the United States got turned on its head. Starting a little less than a week ago, I would say. I could tell you for sure that as somebody who is always a student of the world, of what's going on, and as well as being a congressional candidate here in Southwest Florida, I knew that the coronavirus was happening. In fact, my dad does quite a lot of work in the Wuhan area in China. So he was very acutely aware of the virus going on. And he saw delays and cancellations with his work based on the outbreak that was happening there in China. But it still seemed pretty far away from us for the most part. So we were going about our lives here in the United States as we would any other day leading up to the primary and all the things that we would normally be doing this time of year. So I was getting my campaign you know, rolling as it had been, doing what candidates do, doing you know, call time and events and going out about town and getting our petitions underway. And I have a lot of student volunteers that I was sending out to events and doing petitions and meet and greets on my behalf. And we were just rocking and rolling like we had been the whole time gearing up for the not only the election, but all of the summer events related to getting the word out about our campaign. It really all came to a grinding halt last week. We had started to see the spread of coronavirus happening around the United States. And it was kind of hard for us to take serious, to be honest. Um, we were looking at things and understanding that it was a serious thing, but how serious can it be? And there were other things that are, that are worse. And I think that we don't have a lot of great information around what had been happening with the coronavirus. So we were just continuing to go about our daily lives. And there was this background noise about what was going on. While other countries around the world started to take it serious and understand the numbers behind it, essentially, and uh, started to, to take more drastic measures. We saw earlier this year, Italy go under lockdown. We've seen issues arise around China, Taiwan taking measures, and Japan taking measures. It still seemed pretty far away. Like I said, right up until last week. Then all of a sudden, what had been deemed by the Trump administration as a hoax or continuation of the impeachment suddenly got very real for people across the country, including us here in Florida. I really started to realize myself that it was really happening, that we were really going to do this outbreak thing when we got a note from 
our president. I'm a part-time faculty in the Department of Political Science at Florida Gulf Coast University. And we got an email saying, hey, guess what? Campus closing. Everybody out by sad Sunday. Get ready to teach virtually. Two weeks, though. No big deal, right? All right. And that's what I was thinking. Okay, hey, no big deal. My students have midterms right now. They're just coming back off their own spring break. So I can do this. I teach my class hybrid anyway. I teach a version of the global studies class that I teach uh, as a wholly on online class anyway. So it wasn't a big stretch for me to think of two weeks of virtual material. Then came the news about the K-12 system. So I have three small children, uh, two of whom are in elementary school, and we got a message from the school district coming down from the state that they needed to close. Now they had, this week is technically their spring break and they were gonna extend spring break one more week. Okay, again, no big deal. I was ready to do spring break with them anyway. Not such a big deal. And another week, you know, it'll be all right. We got news today that that now has been extended through April 15th. So we're looking at a full month out of school with the kids and that we should be scheduled uh, or come to the schools at our scheduled time to pick up the district issued Chromebook for them to continue their studies virtually. Now I have a first grader and a fourth grader having a hard time seeing how in particularly my first grader is going to be doing digital learning. My fourth grader, she can probably have a lot of things at her disposal on the computer, but I'm just struggling to be honest. And I'm a, somebody who teaches online. I work for a global training company. So we have people in our classes from all over the world. And like I already said at FGCU, I teach totally online and partially online courses there. So it's not that I'm new to the world of digital learning. I, I get it. I have built learning management systems. I have <laughs> That's fantastic. I really hope that I actually recorded me calling my cat an asshole as he turned off the computer. <laughs> All right. Well, great. Hopefully, I will also be able to learn tonight how to how to edit these podcasts as well. So, uh, my my uh, my cat just jumped on my computer. So. This is one of the fun things about being isolated at home. And I actually have people in the live studio audience. How fantastic is that? So <laughs> mind you, everybody, this is my very first podcast. And uh, I have yet to learn not to swear at my cat. So um, anyway, I was talking about um, transitioning to online learning and what that's going to be like. It's very strange, like I said, even for somebody who 
like me, who is a professional in this area, I have a hard time understanding how we're going to totally transition students, kindergarten and first grade into online learning. Um, on, on top of the fact, by the way, that uh, now this is my responsibility. <laughs> so that's a whole other thing that I've just been kind of handed today, thanks to the coronavirus. And uh, it's a little bit daunting, I'm not going to lie. Uh, and I think today it's fair to say that I've been under the most surreal form of panic I have ever been in my life. And I've actually been through another outbreak. I had lived in Taiwan during the SARS outbreak. So this is not even my first rodeo to, you know, pandemics. And what's going on here in the United States is really starting to become a massive eye-opening situation for me in terms of our life and, and how we can continue to live it the way that we have been. Uh, but I digress. I'll come back to Taiwan in a few moments. But really just thinking about how all of a sudden in less than five days, I've gone from congressional candidate, business person, university instructor, mom, uh, to trying to do it all from my home. I've seen everything somewhat collapse under my feet in very short order. And it's, it's, it's been very crazy. So let me tell you a little bit about how that's gone. So like I said, got the email from the university. I feel like I at least got a little bit of a heads up on in terms of what was coming down because I knew that the, the state university system wasn't just going to be canceling classes for no reason, that they had seen what is going on and that they were really reacting to the reality of the situation above and beyond the partisan politics of it. So they were ready to go. And myself, once I started looking at what the CDC modelings were saying in terms of worst case scenario, like we just pretend like it's not a big deal. Or for instance, you know, we pretend like this is a democratic hoax and just impeachment too. And we just go on about our merry ways. We were actually looking at upwards of 1.7 million people dying and 214 million people being affected with it. So when people are talking about flattening the curve, they're talking about trying to make sure that the people who are going to get it are not all getting it at the exact same time and essentially breaking our healthcare system, which is what we would be looking at with the worst case scenario. And that is exactly the path that we were traveling on with Donald Trump when it first came about, because his priority was what does the stock market look like? And did you check your 401k today? And how's everything going? And how's that unemployment rate? All of that is completely out the window now. It makes no difference whatsoever because we're looking at complete economic depression, recession around the world. We're looking at upwards of 20% unemployment rate over the next several months. And what came down to us today in terms of the change in our lifestyle, I mean, I was worried about, you know, two weeks with my kids. Now we're looking at two months. And really, if you look at the modeling, related to the data that had been presented to the states that made them all of a sudden start doing these mitigation efforts, it could be 18 months, 18 months of this solitary lifestyle that 
we've been forced to live in now. And that's daunting. That's really daunting. So um, that's just a little bit about that. You know, we are facing here in Florida, not only just the university extension, the university system, by the way, had said that now we are going to totally virtual classes throughout the end of the semester. So that's a big deal. And so much so that it had crashed our online learning management system and components of it. It was, it's one that's used by multiple universities around the country. So it was pretty hectic for that, for everybody to get on that all of a sudden. And, uh, but then they also canceled commencement, which as you, if you can imagine for those young people who are coming to the end of their baccalaureate career is, is a pretty sad state of a state of affairs. So I'm sure that at some point in time, we'll be able to honor those students, but it's a pretty deflating experience for those people as well. Not to mention what happens to the lifelong career trajectory of people who graduate during a recession. We're talking prospects being very bleak for them. So it's, it's, a, there's a lot of uh, very t- bad situations going on with that. So my life changed. Now I'm a totally virtual instructor. My company that I work with, uh, one of my main clients that does global training, because by the way, even though I'm a congressional candidate, I'm just a regular person. I don't have a bunch of money in the bank. Um, I didn't even have a 401k to look at. Uh, I actually had to liquidate all of my retirement savings that I had saved independently to take care of my family between some major health issues that we had, including my husband suddenly going blind and then my baby getting sick. And that just wiped out all of our retirement. And so, you know, I don't have to worry about that now, I guess. But uh, so long story short on that, I, I still have to keep working. So I'm, I'm a congressional candidate most of the time. I'm a mom all the time. I am a university instructor part of the time. And I run my business part of the time. So um, as I said earlier, one of the main clients that I have, we are doing online training. And at first we were very excited about it going, oh my gosh, so amazing. Everybody's going virtual. We do virtual learning. We work in organization development. We actually teach on how to set up your remote workforce. And so, wow, what a great opportunity we have here. It's going to just be a real boon for us was how we were initially looking at it. Well, that's how we were looking at it last week. This week during our staff meetings, tone was a little bit somber as we realized the extent of this and the extent of the essential economic collapse that we're looking at and that no one's going to be investing in professional development in the way that we had been accustomed to as we're running our business. And Although we may be able to capitalize on some training around people who are doing their, you know, transition to virtual workforce, that's going to be fairly short-lived and, and sm- uh, you know, very hard to get a hold of because our content right now is rather small. But, uh, you know, again, we went from, okay, great, let's take this opportunity and run with it to, oh my gosh, we're looking at potentially the loss of our entire company. And 
I see other friends of mine around Southwest Florida, uh, good friends of ours who are, you know, parents with kids who are the same age as mine. They opened a brewery here and I don't know if they're going to make it. And I don't know if any of the other small businesses and restaurants are going to make it massive layoffs. We have a, a very resort and hospitality heavy industry here in Southwest Florida. So when the tourists stop coming and when you have, like we have here a 30 day moratorium on bars and and nightclubs being opened and all restaurants essentially being forced to go to takeout, uh, you're talking massive job loss and the small entrepreneurs are not going to be able to make ends meet to compound things further on that. We are in what we call season here. So that's our major time of economic boom. We have lean summer months and heavy, heavy winter months because everybody comes down and enjoys our fantastic weather here in Southwest Florida. And they, uh, then they go back. So, you know, we're looking at the last two months of season here where a lot of small businesses have to, you know, finish out the rest of their feast in order to famine the rest of the year. And, and I'm just worried that a lot of my friends and their small businesses aren't going to make it in the same way that I'm worried about my family not being able to make it. And if the client that I have just says, Hey, look, nobody's signing up. Sorry. It's just going to be back to, you know, back to me running the company, not me, my, my friend who runs the company. Um, so that's going to be a, a big problem for us. Uh, so now I'm homeschooling. I shouldn't really be worried about homeschooling at this point because it's technically spring break, but the slight competitive edge in me wants to get a head start on all the other parents trying to do their homeschool thing. And I, I try to be a little bit laissez-faire about it, but, uh, you know, trying to figure out what exactly I'm going to do with my two elementary school children and my my um, three-year-old while I'm trying to run my business and my campaign from my bedroom. It's already been fantastically successful, by the way. Um, I will add on, typically I have a really, really wonderful babysitter who takes care of my youngest while the other two are in school. And uh, she's really great, helps us out in so many different ways. But about a month before this virus outbreak, uh, her sister, who she's very close with, they live on the same street in North Fort Myers, was diagnosed with lung cancer. So I have these three little kids who are very lovely and all of whom have stuffy noses and little coughs. And I had to tell her, don't come here. Don't come here because I don't want you to take this little sickness or maybe we're carriers of coronavirus. I don't want to take it back to your sister who's doing chemotherapy and radiation and just had lung surgery two weeks ago. I don't want you to take this back to her and have it be the last thing she ever has. So which is also terrible because of course it's an income for her and her family. And, uh, she's also working at the Y which closed. So she has gone from, you know, getting by just enough to 
having almost no income. I'm going to do my best to help her, but I'm also concerned about myself. Um, so there's that going on too. So I will talk about what I'm fortunate to have right now. And I will say that I'm fortunate to have a home. I'm fortunate that my home has space so that my three rambunctious children have, you know, places to play. They have plenty of toys. The, the internet is working. Thank God. Um, I don't know how we would do any of this without it at this moment. And everybody can do their thing. We have plenty of books. We have plenty of science experiments kits. So the kids are going to be okay. We also have outside, which I think is very nice um, situation. We're not in close quarters with other people or other families, like people who live in high rises who are going to be at an even higher risk of contacting potentially somebody who is infected or is a carrier because they are right there on top of everybody else. But so we can stay very comfortably, you know, stocked here. I will also add in that my mom is like a low key doomsday prepper, just saying like since Y2K. <laughs> so she has uh, seen the writing on the wall with this outbreak for a couple weeks now. So she has been uh, keeping us flush with um, granola bars and, Gatorade and powdered milk um, so that we can get by. And um, that's, a, that's, that's a good thing for us, I think, but uh, a fortunate thing for us. So we're going to be okay on that front. So now talking a little bit about my campaign. So gosh, you know, again, I went from having the next two weeks be mad, mad, mad dash to the end of quarter here, trying to raise funds, which as a grassroots candidate like me uh, is a, necess a necessity that we have to make because I'm not self-funding and I don't have big corporate pack dollars coming in my way. I'm just, I just got to hit the streets and hit the phones and try to get people to be convinced that I'm a, a, a valid candidate and that I'm somebody they want to invest in. And you know, that's, um, that's all falling apart. I had so much on the line here the next couple of weeks connecting with my community and it just got canceled in, in a heartbeat. And, and I'm, I'm glad it got canceled because it needs to be canceled. But how now does someone like me make it, right? How does a grassroots candidate make it from this point? And uh, that's, a, that's a challenge that's every day unfolding for me. But I know that in this race that I wouldn't have gotten in it if I really didn't think that I had something that all the other candidates didn't. I started talking about it a little bit on the campaign trail, and it's what I like to call moxie. You've probably heard it before. It's often attached to a woman who just says what she thinks and does what she wants to do, and I think that really defines me. So I think if it's one thing that's going to get me through this race, it's going to be my own moxie, right? So yeah. And, and on that note, if you are interested in <laughs> donating to my campaign, you can find me on Act Blue 
uh, Cindy Banyer. So that's C-I-N-D-Y Banyer, B as in boy, A-N as in Nancy, Y-A-I. You can find me on Aklu and throw me a little bit. Like I said, every little bit counts. You can also check more out about me on my website, cindybanyer.com. I've actually just integrated my shop there. So you can even get some Cindy Banyer swag if you're interested. But um, the thing that's interesting about the campaign, the other thing that uh, I have been doing, essentially once I realized that petition deadline was coming up, events are closing down, I still have a gap in what I need to make. We have to start a campaign across the state to get this deadline pushed out, canceled, postponed, reduced, and fees waived as much as we can. Because otherwise, candidates like me and the hundreds of other candidates down ballot, up and down the race, essentially, who are trying to make their communities a better place, are going to lose out. And they're not going to be able to get on the ballot because there are people who have major national parties behind them. There are people who have big super PACs behind them. And they all, you know, the $10,440 that a congressional candidate has to pay to get on the ballot, that's that's a drop in the bucket to them. Now, that's going to clean out my bank account, make it impossible for me to take next steps, especially as we're looking at the fundraising drying up because regular people aren't going to have money. And frankly, neither are business people. So this is going to really change the way that the race is run. And so where I have been putting my efforts as I've gone to being a grassroots candidate trying to run a grassroots candidate campaign out of my bedroom was to take up that mantle on behalf of all the candidates across the state of Florida. So we have put out press releases and I've already been talking on Twitter, but as of tomorrow morning, we're going to be sending out a letter with at least eight congressional candidates signed on to it and hopefully a handful of other down ballot candidates as well as some party leadership to formally request that the governor uh, postpone the submission deadline for the ballot uh, petitions, as well as reduce the amount needed and reduce the fees needed as well. In interest of public health, but also in the interest of democracy. And so that's the battle that I've chosen. And I think, I think that um, it will go well. I hope that he, we will be heated. Maybe we won't, but that's okay. Cause we will have that and we'll continue to take that to the media to raise awareness on that of the inaction of the DeSantis administration here in Florida related to all the things that need to be considered when it comes to public health and when it comes to freedom and democracy. And we will keep fighting that battle. Uh, I really like this, uh, cause because I think that it actually helps to demonstrate some of the skills I have to take to Congress, which includes whipping up votes and getting support and influencing people to join on. So uh, this has been a little bit of a demonstrative effort in that way for me as well. And even if it's not ultimately successful, I think that I've built a good group of people uh, who have been interested in this effort and uh would be wanting to talk a little bit more. I actually have somebody who wants to call in. I don't know how this works. Let's see what happens when I click him. Okay. 
Hello. Hi. Can you introduce Hi. Hello. Hello. Yeah, I'm speaking. What's your name? Hi. I'm Sherpa. Hello, Sherpa. Where are you calling from? I'm from Nepal. Oh, my. From Nepal. How are you doing over there? <laughs> yeah, good. Have you ever heard about it? Uh, yeah, yeah, I've, I've heard of Nepal. I've, uh, what is my lifetime bucket list is to uh, climb Mount Everest, but I do hear that because of the coronavirus, <laughs> expeditions have been halted. Oh, uh, yeah, it, it, it's uh, all the peaks and Mount Everest is closed for a sudden, sudden parade right now. And yeah, where are you from? Yeah, I'm in Florida. I'm actually running for Congress here in Florida, trying to make my way to Washington, D.C. Uh-huh. Okay, so, yeah, I was listening to um, your show, and I, so I'm in by profession what to do. Yeah, what am I going to do? Well, that's... That's a good question. Thanks. I'm going to go ahead and put you back on, on mute here a little bit because there's a bit of a background noise. But thank you so much for calling. And, um, you know, my heart is with Nepal and everyone around the world as we were facing this crisis. I think there's always going to be a special place in my heart for Asia and Himalayan countries. Though. So thanks for <laughs> thanks for calling again. So yeah, so thanks for thanks for being my first caller, Sherpa. <laughs> um, and how, what am I going to do? You know, I think that that's a very good question. I was faced with this question uh, many times this week. Uh, you know, from my students, most importantly, I have 150 students at Florida Gulf Coast University between the three uh, classes, and I, uh, you know, with my I, I know what I'm going to do with them and uh, I'm going to just move them totally to the online version of the class. But with the American government class that I teach, you know, we had dialogues and, you know, regular readings and a lot of interaction. And I, I just don't know how I'm going to handle that yet. I haven't, I haven't had enough time to think about it, to be honest. And I've been so busy fighting this battle to make sure that I can get on the ballot that uh, it's been hard to keep up with just about anything else aside from, you know, taking care of my kids. So I've been taking care of my kids and trying to keep my life from falling apart and trying to anticipate what I'm going to need to keep them inside the house for the next 30 days and, uh, and then also anticipate what's going on. Um, you know, otherwise, I'm going to have to try to raise funds, uh, whatever Governor DeSantis decides to try to get my name on the ballot. So that's the plan for that. And then, frankly, just try to keep all the other work going to keep my family and my life going. Like I said, I'm very fortunate in the circumstance that I, I will, you know, I'm in better position than most. A lot of people have already been laid off and a lot of people are going to lose their jobs. And we're looking at upwards of 20% unemployment rate. And that's going to be a major problem for us. So that's one of the reasons why it was really great to hear Senator Mitt Romney talk about uh, having a basic income for adults in the United States 
to get people through this. And fascinating that as a Republican, he was uh, floating that. But, you know, here we are. And it looks like the Trump administration is going to follow through with it because that is really going to be at least a little bit of what people need to get through. But it may not be enough to get through. And um, so just before I I leave, I did just want to share a little bit on my experience in Taiwan during SARS, because as I said earlier in this broadcast, this is not my first rodeo to a global pandemic, so to speak. So back as a student, uh, well, not as a student, right after I graduated, I moved to Taiwan and I was a English teacher there and I was a kindergarten teacher there. And in 2003, we had the SARS outbreak. Now, interestingly enough, the coronavirus is a kind of SARS. And in fact, even the SARS-1 was itself a coronavirus. But we, you know, for clarification, there's SARS and then now there's coronavirus. But they are essentially very similar acting viruses. So um, it is really just a, you know, act two of a similar kind of pandemic. So what we witnessed in Taiwan was very similar to what we saw here. You know, people see it coming. It's starting out of China. It's spreading. We are worried about our health and what's going on. And like I said, I was working at a school with small children and elementary school and kindergarten. And so we started taking preventative measures quite early on of, you know, every single kid that came through the school got their temperature taken and we still were not able to stem it. And part of the resulting hysteria from that came from the fact that Taiwan was cut off from the information sharing related to the virus via the World Health Organization. And that has everything to do with geopolitics, has to do with the fact that Beijing uh, is the official emissary of China to the WHO. And they said explicitly to them, do not give any information to Taipei. They are, we'll give them the information because they're technically part of our, our, you know, sphere of influence or sovereignty or whatever. And, uh, but this caused a lot of problems for us in Taiwan because of course, Beijing did not, give the doctors, the scientists, and the government officials the information they needed to make the best possible decisions. And there was about, at the time, 23 million people living on the island. So, and in close proximity too. So, you know, pandemics are a, a real worry when you live in those kind of situations. And um, anyway, so we, we did about a two-week shutdown like we initially are in here in the United States. And it was eerie, you know, it was very eerie. Everybody sent home, stores closed, business closed, public transportation closed. And Beijing, or not, I'm sorry, Taipei at the time was 12 million people and in the you know metropolitan area. And to watch that many people come to a standstill the way that it did was, was fascinating. It was fascinating. But, um, you know, it seemed like that was good enough for the time and it stopped enough of the spread 
that uh, we were able to go back to our work and our lives in pretty short order. And that was, that was good enough. And uh, it got better. And then we went back to work and we learned a lot about cleaning habits and cleanliness habits and, you know, the hand sanitizer and uh, disinfecting the schools became the norm. And that was all um, really important lessons. So now we've been seeing how Taiwan is the leader in the world in terms of being able to essentially stop the spread of the virus. And they're attributing, attributing that to the fact that they had already done this. And I will add on the further piece of commentary that they not only had done this previously, but they had done it in a way that they had to be on their own. They were disconnected from most of the major information via the WHO. And so I think that added level of alertness and astuteness in the government kind of led them to take this swift and necessary actions to stop it. And it essentially gave them the courage to do it again very quickly. Whereas we saw in contrast in the United States, we took a long time. We drug our feet. We talked about how it was going to be bad and how it's a hoax and how we're going to, it's not real and it's hysteria and paranoia. And that whole series of weeks where we were doing that as a nation, pretending like it wasn't a problem, actually stopped us from being able to completely mitigate this problem. And so now we have moved in from mitigation to suppression, which is a far more specific and far more wide reaching way to try to stem the epidemic. And it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt a lot. It already is hurting a lot of people and it's going to hurt more. And that's terrible. And on the last note that I want to leave on this, this night is just to say that as you're thinking about this and you're scorning the changes in your life uh, around what needs to be done to stem the outbreak of coronavirus. Think about whom you are keeping safe by maintaining your hygiene and maintaining isolation and social distancing. You are literally helping to save my daughter's life. And my daughter Evie is just coming out of having autoimmune hemolytic anemia. It's a rare blood disease. And she had severe immune suppression related to the medicine she needed to stop that disease. And it nearly cost her her life a year and a half ago from respiratory failure. So it's this kind of thing that we need to be concerned about. It's elderly people, it's sick people, but it's also sick young people like my, my, my little daughter, Evie. So that's one of the reasons why I've been hypervigilant. That's one of the reasons why I have so much disinfectant in my house. It's one of the reasons why I pretty specifically went into, you know, social distancing and self-isolation in my home because I don't want to see her back in there. And I definitely don't want to see her back in a hospital needing a ventilator when there isn't one. And frankly, I don't want to see anybody in our community like that. 
And so I think that everybody in the United States and all around the world needs to take this serious, but that we can provide space to connect with one another and continue to improve our lives. And I'm doing that every day through what needs to be done in my own home and through continuing my business, but also continuing my campaign and my fight for everyday families as I work to speak truth to power to everybody in my community all the way to Washington, D.C. So for tonight, I'm going to end there. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to me. I'm going to record this podcast and put it up as my first podcast on my website here. You can find it integrated into my general website at cindybanier.com. That's C-I-N-D-Y. B as in boy, A as in Nancy, Y-A-I.com. Thanks so much. Have a great day.